Well, last week we began to take a look at Revelation chapter 2. And you can go ahead and open your Bibles up there. Revelation chapter 2. Last week we studied verses 1 through 5. And if you weren't here and you'd like to listen to that study, it is up on our webpage at aloveoutreach.com. And it's on iTunes as well. But before we jump into our verses for today, let's just go back and start reading at verse 1 of Revelation chapter 2. It says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now our verses for today, starting in verse 6, Jesus goes on to say to the believers in the church of Ephesus, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, I will briefly skip over the topic of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus says here that he hates their deeds and the things, the things that they do, right? I will pick up that topic again as we get further along here in chapter 2. But what I will address here is what the Lord says there in verse 7, that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus is speaking, of course, to the Apostle John here. But Jesus proclaims that it is the Spirit that is saying these things. Back in chapter 1, and you can look back there if you'd like, John said in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. So what is it that has taken place here in the life of the Apostle John as we study this letter? What are we seeing? He is physically on the island called Patmos, but spiritually he is somewhere else. Now, does this occur anywhere else in the Bible? Well, I'd like to show you a few different scriptures here. Let's mark this page and let's turn to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 8. Just trying to paint the picture here of what's happening in the life of John. Uh, you know, how this revelation that Jesus is, is giving to John, how it's all taken place. And in Ezekiel chapter 8, and we start reading in verse 1. 
It says, and it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. So Ezekiel here gives, gives us some very detailed, detailed information. He gives us the year, the month, the day, and the place where he was when the hand of the Lord God fell upon him. Then he says in verse 2, Then I looked, and there was a likeness like the appearance of fire. From the appearance of his waist and downward fire, and from his waist and upward like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. He stretched out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my hair, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. So the hand of the Lord God here fell upon Ezekiel, and the Spirit, capital S as you see there, lifted him up so that he was in a place between heaven and earth. So this is the work of the Spirit of God in the life of Ezekiel on this particular day. Now, turn to chapter 40 of this same book, Ezekiel chapter 40. Again, we're, we're thinking about what's happening with John and how all this is taking place. He's physically on the island of Patmos, but spiritually something else is happening. We're looking back of, at other times when it's happened in Scripture. And in Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 1, it says, In the 25th year of our captivity... At the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year, after the city was captured, on the very same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there. In the visions of God, he took me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. On it toward the south was something like the structure of a city. So again, we see Ezekiel was taken by the Lord here in a vision, and the Lord through that vision was going to again speak with Ezekiel. Now hang with me here, and let's turn back to the New Testament, to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, this is, of course, the Apostle Paul writing to the believers in the city of Corinth. And he says to them, starting in verse 1, so 2 Corinthians 12, 1, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. So Paul says, hey, let's talk about this topic. Let's talk about the topic of visions and revelations of the Lord. He says in verse 2, I, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. So Paul seems to be 
As I read this, he seems to be kind of hemming and hauling, if you will, as to say he seems to be reluctant to talk about this subject. He doesn't want to boast about what was taking place. He speaks of someone else here in a sense, but most believe that he's talking about himself. And verse 4 goes on how, and says, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is, which is not lawful for a man to utter. So he's talking again about visions and revelations. And he says, you know, what he says there in verse 1, he didn't know whether this was something that took place out of the body or still in the body, but he says he was caught up in the paradise. And down in verse 7 is where we get the indication that Paul was talking about himself here because he says, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. So what's the point? that I'm trying to make in all of this. Well, as we turn back to Revelation chapter 2, the thing that I'm pointing out to you here is that what is taking place in the life of the Apostle John is the Spirit of the Lord is talking to John. And the Spirit of the Lord is giving John this vision and this revelation. And this is not something new that the Lord God is doing by his spirit. It has happened on other occasions throughout biblical history. But I want you to have a clear picture as to what exactly is taking place here as we study this book of Revelation. Jesus isn't physically on the earth speaking to John. John was in the spirit and the spirit of the Lord took him into this vision and gives John this revelation. So again, in verse 7, it is the Spirit of the Lord speaking to, uh, to John, through John, to the seven churches. But the Lord God didn't want for only the seven churches to hear this message from His Spirit. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it wasn't just for the churches, right? So if we'll pay attention, the Spirit of the Lord will speak to us as we go through this book and we see what the Spirit of the Lord had to say to these seven churches. And also in verse 7, Jesus says, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So this speaks of an eternal life in heaven. And it gives us a, a picture of kind of like a restoration of the Garden of Eden. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Okay? And we're getting that picture here of eternal life. And, and this is promised to those who stay in that place of their first love. And do not give up or give into the world's way of living, but rather continue by faith and they overcome the world. That's what Jesus says here to the church of Ephesus. He who overcomes, right? He says, I've got this against you. You've left your first love. We talked about last week how they did all these good works, but they left their first love. 
And love is the key, right? So that is what speaks to us today as we read what um, Jesus spoke to the church in Ephesus in that day. And we now move on in verse 8. The Lord God says, And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. Now, like I mentioned to you all last week, Jesus will describe himself to each one of these churches to whom he has John write. He describes himself in a way that we saw him described in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 17, Jesus said, I am the first and the last. And this is the same title, if you will, that Jesus uses here to speak to the church in Smyrna. Jesus is our risen Lord. Therefore, he is the one who was dead and came to life, right? He then says to them in verse 9, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So as we, so as we talked about uh, in more detail last week, Jesus does recognize our works. The works that we do matter to him. The church in Smyrna also had tribulation, which was a common thing that all the churches at that time experienced. Many trials and, and much persecution. They were also an impoverished people. They were destitute of riches and of material abundance. Uh, much like the early church that we read of in the book of Acts, um, they did not gather for themselves, but rather they, rather they had all things in common, and they gave all that they had to serve the Lord and to live for His glory. But, at, but as we see in the parentheses there, in verse 9, Jesus says to them, but you are rich. How were they in poverty and rich at the same time? Well, they were rich in spiritual things. You see, Jesus spoke a parable in the book of Luke. And I'd like for you to mark this page again and turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke. It's in the New Testament. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John. So Luke chapter 12. Again, these people of the church of Smyrna, Jesus says they were, they were in poverty, but they were rich. And then in Luke chapter 12, starting down in verse 16, it says, Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will st store all of my crops and my goods. I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for you for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. 
Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, the people of the church in Smyrna, Smyrna were, were not materially rich. They lived in poverty, but they were rich toward God. And this is what the Lord wants from us all, first and foremost, right? He wants us to live our lives abundantly for him and to live for his glory. If we have riches, if we obtain riches, if we have the goods of this world, then we should use them for the glory of God and live for his glory. Too much of Christianity today has turned to material things, okay? And our churches do a lot of things about that, you know. We hold financial seminars and Christian bookstores are loaded with the writings on how to become wealthy and all of that kind of stuff. But... There's another story here in the book of Luke that I'd like us to take a, a quick look at, and that's in chapter 19. So Luke chapter 19. It says in verse 1, Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. So he wasn't in poverty, right? And he lived for the things of this world, much like the man that Jesus spoke of in the other parable in Luke chapter 12. And verse 3 tells us of Zacchaeus, and he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So the part that stands out to me there in verse 3 is that Zacchaeus sought to see who Jesus was. Something was stirring inside of Zacchaeus. Who is this Jesus? Verse 4 says, So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste. And come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. So we see that Zacchaeus first desires to seek the Lord. That was the first thing. Then he receives the Lord. Okay. Then, of course, the religious hypocrites see what's taking place. And verse 7 says, But when they saw it, they all complain, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. So what has happened here is that Zacchaeus has found the place of his first love. He sought the Lord. He received the Lord. Now he's in love with the Lord. And this is the place of his first love. And remember, we talked about that last week, what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. He wanted them to return to that place, that place of their first love, that first love, right? That time in their lives when, when they were 
was completely sold out to Jesus. That time when salvation first shows up and nothing else matters. Who knows what it is that got Zacchaeus to this point where he wanted to seek the Lord. And with each one of us here, there were many different things that brought us to that place. Could have been trials and troubles and different things like that. But in one way or another, we decided we wanted to seek the Lord. We wanted to see Him. And then we receive Him. And then we live for Him. And that's what we see in that picture of Zacchaeus. He was rich toward God. Okay? And verse 9, Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house because He also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So we are children of Abraham when we come to faith. It was Abraham's faith, faith that pleased God, and, and all who come to faith in Jesus Christ today are children of Abraham in that sense. But Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, such as Zacchaeus was. And Zacchaeus had the goods of this world, but he came to a place where his love for the Lord was greater than his love for the things of the world. That was the place of his first love. Now let's turn toward the back of our Bibles and find the letter of 1 John. Back toward Revelation again. It's a small book, very easy to pass up. 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3, and let's start reading down in verse 17. It says, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So it really doesn't get any plainer than that, right? If you have the goods of this world, if you have material goods and you see a brother or a sister in the Lord or in your, you know, your family, whatever it may be, and you know they lack, but you don't help them, then the, the love of God, the word says, is not abiding in us, right? Because again, Zacchaeus is an example for us of someone that came to the love of the Lord, right? And then he became a giver rather than a gatherer. He sought the Lord. He received the Lord. And then everything about the inside of him changed. And he was a giver rather than a gatherer. And verse 18 says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So in other words, I would summarize that verse. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth, I would summarize that by saying, actions speak louder than words. We have to live it. Let that love of the Lord where we've surrendered all and, and, and the things of this world grow strangely dim to us and don't matter to us anymore. We live that out and, and we become that giver rather than that gatherer, right? The Lord desires for us to be rich toward God, rich in spiritual things, seeking first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness. And as we turn back to Revelation chapter 2 now, the church in Smyrna, they had the, the right outlook. Yes, they were poor in this world, but they were rich in the Lord. And the Lord recognized their good works. Now again, we know that they dealt with much tribulation during that time. And in verse 10, Jesus says to them, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, if you really take some time to think about that verse, it's pretty intense. Jesus is saying that some of you are going to be thrown into prison, right? And the devil, we see, is behind all of that. But this will be a test for these people. But Jesus says, be faithful unto, unto death, and you will get the crown of life, right? Now, if Jesus were to speak to me today and tell me that I was going to go through some hard times, I would rather he say to me, oh, it's all going to be good afterwards, Dave. It's going to be some hard times, but you're going to get through it. And you got good times lying ahead for you. But this is not what Jesus tells them. He tells them that death will come for some of them as a result of this tribulation from the devil. But Jesus doesn't turn their eyes onto that problem. Instead, he turns their eyes toward the good things that are to come the crown of life, right? The good that is to wake them. They're going to go to the paradise of God. He's focusing their attention not on what's happening now and what's happening here, but on where they're going to go. And you know, I've mentioned this before, right? But again, modern day Christianity, when you look at it, it's in many ways, it's, it's getting far away from Scripture. And there's a best-selling book that I've mentioned before, but it's called Your Best Life Now. It's a New York Times bestseller, 200 weeks in a row. It was the bestseller. Four million copies of this book have sold. But you see, this is what people are looking for today. Even professing Christians are looking for their best life now. Okay? They, they don't want to be givers. They want to be gatherers. And again, Zacchaeus is our example of a man that fell in love with Jesus sought him and received him and then lived for him. You see, our best life is yet to come. There's a crown of life awaiting for us, right? Our best life is yet to come, and it's not here on this earth. And we should take the time to find out from scriptures what is the meaning of being faithful? Because Jesus says, remain faithful. Be faithful till the end. So we keep on seeking Jesus. We keep on looking unto Jesus. And we, we desire to grow spiritually, grow, grow stronger spiritually, you know, than, than more than we desire to have the things of this world, right? And then Jesus says in verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, there's an old saying that pops into my mind when I was studying this that old saying amongst Christianity, right? Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once, right? This speaks of the fact that a person must be born again. There must be a death that occurs in us now 
on this side of heaven before we physically die here on this earth. Now, from the biblical standpoint, our physical death on this earth will be our first death. There is a second death that is talked about in Revelation chapter 20. And we'll look at that in in more depth when we get there in the future in Revelation chapter 20. But this second death is the death that people will experience in the lake of fire. And it is those that have not come to faith in Jesus Christ. So while we are here on this earth, we must take the opportunity to receive the gift of God's grace and come to faith in Jesus Christ. This this is of the utmost importance for every human being on the face of the earth today. There's only one way, and it is Jesus Christ. And the way a person comes to faith is through the gospel message, by hearing the word of God. In Romans chapter 10, it says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, right? Again, there is a second death that awaits those that do not come to faith in Jesus through the word of God. People must die to their old sinful nature. People must repent of being of, of living a selfish life, a flesh-led life, and it's all about me life, and people must surrender to Jesus Christ and for his glory. And as we go through and we see little stories in the Bible like that of Zacchaeus, we see that this is what the Lord is pointing us to, you know, coming to him, seeking after him, finding him, and then living for him, right? Now, moving on into uh, verse 12, it says, And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. So again, we refer back to chapter 1. This time, chapter 1, verse 16. It says, Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. So Jesus approaches the church in Pergamos as the word of God. Okay? And if you just look down at verse 16 for a moment, Jesus says, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You see, the sword of Jesus's mouth is the word of God. And the word of God is what is used to fight against evildoers within the, the assembly of God. He says to them in verse 13 to the church of Pergamos, right? I know your works. So again, this is repetitive, right? But Jesus knows our works, okay? Don't think that they're not seen. As a matter of fact, we'll see later on in the book of Revelations that our works are written in a book, okay? And you'll find that in Revelations chapter 20, verse 12. And we'll get there as well. But Jesus says in here in verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now pause right there. Now, of course, as um, as we looked at when, when we began Revelations chapter 1, Pergamos was one of the seven churches, of course, and it was in the city, uh, it was in a, an ancient city in Asia Minor, right? And But it held a distinction as a place for the headquarters of emperor worship. 
That's what that city once was. It was the headquarters of emperor worship. What is emperor worship? Well, emperor worship is also referred to as imperial cultism, right? An imperial cult. It simply means that the king or the emperor was worshipped as God. Okay? So Pergamos was a place that was the headquarters for that kind of worship. Okay? And Jesus refers to it here as Satan's throne. But in the midst of this evil place, there were these believers to whom Jesus writes. Okay? And he continues to speak to them in verse 13 and says, Joe, I'm going to pause for a second. Something's popping into my mind when I just said that. That here in, this, in the midst of an evil place, the Lord is noticing believers. Even with everything going on all around them, he's noticing believers and he's noticing their works and he's noticing what they're doing and he's still speaking to them and encouraging them, live this way, keep going, stay the course. So no matter what it gets like around us, no matter how dark it might be in your circumstances and your situation, your place of employment, whatever it is, God sees what we're doing here. He knows what we're doing. And then uh, verse 13 there continues, And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So you see, this man Antipas stood for the word of God and for faith in Jesus Christ, and they killed him for it, right? But he gets his name marked down in the eternal word of God. And Jesus commends the rest of the people there, the rest of the believers. He commends them for not caving in even after this terrible thing happens to this man, Antipas. Right? They, they held fast to their faith even though that man was killed for doing so. Now to put this into perspective, right? If in your neighborhood... You heard that someone was killed for their faith in Jesus Christ right on your street. And then a couple of days later, while you're out on the street, someone walks up to you and says, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Right? What would your answer be? Okay. Well, that's where the rubber meets the road, right? And this is what the believers in Pergamos were faced with, but they held fast to the name of Jesus, even though this just happened, right? Even though someone amongst them was just beheaded for it. They didn't say, oh, I better shut up now. I'm not going to talk about Jesus anymore. They just kept living it, right? Then verse uh, 14, But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now I said earlier that I'll get to this topic, right? Back in verse 6 of chapter 2 here, Jesus told those of the church in Ephesus that they were doing good because they hated the deeds of of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus said he also hated. Okay, So now Jesus brings this group of people up again. 
Now, the reason that I skipped this topic earlier is for one, I knew it was coming up again here in the study, but also we get a little more insight here into the deeds of these people. There are all kinds of speculation as to who these people were and to what exactly, you know, was, quote, the, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. But one thing that I, that I like to do when I prepare Bible studies is to read the Greek words that were used in the original text. Remember, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, okay? Now, I'm going to come back. I'm going to skip that topic again just very briefly. Hang with me here because we also see the doctrine of Balaam mentioned here, right? Um, and if you'd like, you can go back. You don't have to do it now, but in your own personal study time, if you'd like, you can go read Numbers chapter 22 through 24 and then also Numbers chapter 30. Where, where this topic is covered. See, Balaam was a prophet. He was not, however, an Israelite, but God did indeed speak to Balaam. And there was a king named Balak at that time, again, who you can read about in those chapters in Numbers, who became very afraid of the children of Israel simply because there was so many of them. And he was afraid they were going to overtake him. Right? And he knew that Balaam seemed to be a man of God, so he sent for this guy, Balaam. And he offered Balaam money if Balaam would just curse the people of Israel for him. Because he knew that Balaam had this ability to do this. But Balaam listened to God and wouldn't do it. But what Balaam did do was that he went to King Balak and he informed the king on how to get the Israelites to curse themselves. So he was kind of using trickery in this. God told him, don't, don't do this. Don't curse these people. But instead, he takes a roundabout way, goes to the king because he wanted the money. And he says, I could tell you how you can get them to curse themselves. So he told King Balak to get them to sleep, get the children of Israel to sleep with prostitutes, eat unclean food, sacrifice to idols. So he sent prostitutes in there, started to defile the children of Israel, and they fell into this trap, and then God then judged them for it, and he sent them a deadly plague. So in this way, right, Balaam, the supposed man of God, taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. That's what Jesus points out here. That that's what, that's what um, Balaam did. He taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. So the church in, in Pergamos was allowing sexual immorality, which is any sex outside of marriage. They were allowing this to take place within the people of the church. They were allowing for these type of people to be in the body. And they needed to deal with this, and they needed to get the people out of the church, just like the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians that they needed to do. You can't have this. Jesus says, I have this against you. You're putting up with this stumbling block being in your midst, within your fellowship. You've got this stumbling block. You've got people living in sexual immorality. Okay, okay. so now, what about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? Well, the word or the title, if you will, again, if you study the Greek words, right, that word or that title, Nicolaitans, is made up of two Greek words, 
okay? Nico and Laos, right? And when you put their meanings together, it means to conquer the people. That's what that word means, Nicolaitans, to conquer the people. So it speaks of like a proud authority, a hierarchy put over people to rule them. Okay. What is a hierarchy? Well, the Webster's defines it as a system or an organization in which people groups are ranked one above the other in status and authority. So Jesus doesn't want this in the church. 1 Timothy 2.5 says that there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So Jesus doesn't want men to be set up over other men and women in a hierarchy type system within the church. There's no need for a priesthood to rule over people today, right? Now, are there positions of leadership within the body of Christ? Yes, there are, right? We know that from Scripture. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and expound on this just a little more. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 11. Speaking of Jesus, and it says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So we cannot make the mistake of denying that Jesus has put these people within the body of Christ. But let's take a deeper look at what the purpose of these leaders should be. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So I'm a pastor and a Bible teacher, but my work is simply to equip you to do the work of the ministry so that you can go out and edify the body of Christ. But you see, there is a destination for you, right? Verse 13 says, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the statue and the fullness of Christ. You see, I want the people that I pastor, that I teach to mature in the Lord and to start doing the work of the ministry on your own, right? I want to teach you the word of God so that you will see what the Lord wants you to do. Because you and me, we all have to come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And what happens when we get there? Verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. You see, I'm not a ruler over you. No man, no woman is supposed to be. I am a servant of the Lord and nothing more. My work is to cause you to grow to the place where you live your life knowing that Jesus is the head. And there's one God and one mediator between you and God. No one else is in the middle. He is the Almighty, right? That's all a, a pastor and a teacher's job or th these positions that the Lord has put in. They're to point 
not to lord pe- not to lord their lives over others right but to point people to Jesus so as we wrap it up back for today back in revelation chapter 2 Jesus didn't want the people of Pergamos to put up with sexual immorality and nor did he want them to have people as lords over them he tells them in verse 16 he says repent or else i will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth now i talked i touched on that verse earlier and we'll go we'll pick that verse up again next week but we'll stop here for today let's pray